0: All right. Good morning, guys. Uh. Oh, I was weak. Good morning, guys. That's better. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my privilege to welcome you uh, to our worship service this morning. Glad you're with us. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 5. So grab your Bibles, open up your iPhone apps. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one off the floor in front of you. Uh, We're going to Galatians chapter 5. That's page 974 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, Um, we would encourage you to take the one that we have in front of you. We would love for that to be a gift to you. Um, Anything we can do to help put the Word of God into your hands and equip you to read it and study it, we are glad to do. So please uh, take advantage of that. All right, so we are going to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 and then jumping down to some of the other verses. Verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Drop down to verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The word of the Lord. Uh, Let's take a moment let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for... um, Man, just the the privilege of opening your word this morning. I thank you that I get to unpack this passage, Spirit. I pray that you would enliven my words, that you would open the eyes of our spiritual understanding. I know that ultimately we are not able to see clearly without you giving us sight. And so I pray that you would um, be here incubating this truth in our hearts that it might bear much fruit. I pray, Lord, that this would define us, that this passage would would mark us as individuals and mark us as a church. Lord, you know how needful this word is for us today, which means we're needful for you to drive it home to our hearts. And so I just come and ask, Lord, that you would do so. And I pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right you guys, we're kind of at the climax of the book of Galatians. We we spent a lot of time last fall kind of teaching through this and and we were here last week and um, everything has been driving to this one point. This this one statement that it is for Christ, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That that freedom is one of the most precious gifts we have. As followers of Christ. It is our gift. It it is ours to enjoy. But but more than simply being a gift, a privilege of being a follower of Christ, it's in fact a duty, right? The text says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That is a a command, right? It is a a duty. Christ paid a, a dear price for you and I to be free. What that means is that a compromise of our freedom is an optional. We are obligated to walk in the freedom that Jesus died that we might have. Now, we've taken a look in this letter at, at, at primarily one, but there are two major threats against our freedom in Christ. And Paul's main, letter, main point in this entire letter is, is ultimately to call the Galatians to defend their freedom um, against... Uh, some religious false teachers who were coming in, and and they were basically saying, you know, believe in Jesus, but add to your faith good works, right? Believe in Jesus, that's a good start. But if you want to be a a varsity-level Christian, man, you need to to add these good works. And specifically, there were circumcision and observing holy days and (coughs) holy weeks and things like that. Today, culturally, it's a little bit different. It might be believe in Jesus and dress this way or look this way or follow this code of conduct or, or use only these words or listen to only this kind of music, whatever it is. We, we have our way of, of adding things to the gospel, our cultural understanding of how people are supposed to look, behave, sound, and we overlay it on the gospel and call it the gospel. And when we do that, we distort the gospel and we rob people of their freedom and grace. And last week, we, we kind of unpacked this. But we're moving today to this second threat because Paul knows that that there's a danger. So as he's warning them against the danger of religion, he knows there's a danger of a rebound because people are like pendulums, and, and pendulums are really good at one thing. They swing from one extreme to the other. And while religion is, is a real threat, and he spends most of his letter basically uh, calling the Galatians to defend their freedom against uh, those that would bring religion in and replace human behavior and effort with, with the gospel, he knows that there's another danger. And that danger is, is just as great of a threat to the freedom of the gospel as religion is, and, and ultimately that's the freedom of the abuse of grace. There are some who, who when they, man, they get a taste of, of um, religious freedom of freedom of grace man they, they run to it and and sometimes run right through it to to an abuse of grace. Some of you have come from super religious backgrounds super uptight religious backgrounds where where you were like just pounded with legalism and and lots of man-made expectations and and you're getting a taste of, of grace and you're hearing about you know God's love for you not based on your performance but Christ's performance for you and you're just getting intoxicated with it and that's awesome um, and you're running with it right? You're running with it, but the problem is that that some of you are going to run um, to the to the point of of making freedom an end in of itself. So here's a danger, you guys, that, that that you will distort the gospel in your pursuit of freedom. There's there's a danger that you will actually sacrifice the genuine freedom of the gospel in the name of freedom, that you'll actually miss it, miss genuine grace fueled freedom, and that you'll settle for a counterfeit that is every bit as dangerous as religion so here's kind of where we're going today the the key to true freedom the the key that unlocks true freedom in our lives is faith and the territory that it unlocks us to is love true freedom is always unlocked by faith and unlocks us to love so that's kind of where we're going today take a look at verse 13 let's look at our passage verse 13 for you were called to freedom brothers Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You were called to freedom, but (laughs) there's danger. You were called to freedom, but there is danger. A danger that when you run to your freedom, you'll start using your freedom. I don't know if you noticed that interesting shift in, in the text, right? Because he begins by saying, stand firm in your freedom. He's saying, though, but while we're calling you to stand firm in your freedom, there's a danger that you're going to use your freedom. Two very different things. So we have to ask the question, what's the difference between standing firm in our freedom and using our freedom? Right? Standing firm in our freedom is exercising our freedom, walking in our freedom, celebrating our freedom. What's, that, what's the difference between that and, and using our freedom? And I think for us to really explore that, we have to first define freedom. Some of you are like, well, why do we need to do that, man? This is America, right? In America, man, we're the, we're the home of the brave and the land of the free, right? We, we don't need to define freedom. Well, that's exactly why we need to define freedom, because we have very, very strong cultural views of freedom that shape our understanding, that influence us, Right? Um, culture is, is a stream of thought in which we all swim. And the same way a fish doesn't notice the water around us, we often don't notice the culture that shapes our thinking. And, and and in America, we have a very strong opinion about what freedom is, right? Here's the bottom line. We love autonomy. We love independence, right? We love basically being our own boss, right? So we think freedom is autonomy, which essentially means I get to do what I want. I get to do what I want. If, if I were to ask most people what freedom is, like just go to the, the normal, everyday person on the street, they're, they're basically going to tell me something along that line, which is I'm free when I get to do what I want. All right? What's freedom of speech? Most people would define freedom of speech as being able to say whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Right? People talk about financial freedom. What do they mean by that? Most of the time what they mean is, is I'm financially free when I have enough money to do what I want. right?" So I want to get out of debt, which was a problem. I got into debt because I wanted to do what I wanted. right? I just spent money I didn't have because I wanted to do what I wanted when I wanted to do it. But financial freedom is getting out of debt and having enough money to travel or to go out to a nice meal or, or maybe have security, whatever it is that you want your money for. right? Financial freedom is I get to do what I want. Emotional freedom. I have have a lot of conversations about emotional freedom, usually with people that are in very difficult relational situations, marriages that are breaking down. One spouse will be telling me, man, I want emotional freedom. What they mean by that is I'm not getting to do what I want. I'm not getting to feel how I want. I need to shed myself of these restrictions, this baggage, this hardship, because it's getting in the way of my emotional freedom, of my ability to do what I want. The reality is each of those definitions is, in fact, a distortion of freedom. The bottom line is most people, and I would argue probably most people in this room, would equate freedom with autonomy and autonomy with self-gratification. Freedom is getting to make myself happy. Saying what I want, doing what I want, spending what I want, acting like I want. Freedom is is about self-gratification. <clears throat> and what we think is when I finally attain that level of freedom, financial freedom, educational freedom, relational freedom, whatever it is, when I get that, then I'll be happy. If I can just attain that level of, of, of autonomy, then I'll be happy. Well, that's not a good definition of freedom. Uh, first of all, it's, it's just wrong. Um, and second of all, w- we can look around us and see that, it, that pragmatically it doesn't work. Right According to that definition, the people who have the most, that allows them to be autonomous, they should be the happiest, right? So the, so the most well-adjusted, happiest, normal people in our society should be our celebrities, our rock stars, our uber-rich, the people that have attained all the things we can only dream of attaining. I hope you see the irony there. <laughs> they are not the definition of normal. and they are far from the definition of happy. We have a deficient definition of freedom. If freedom, and I've used this illustration before, and I'll use it again. I think it drives it home fairly well. If freedom really was very simply getting what I want, then the freest person on earth would be a drug addict with an unlimited supply of drugs. They would be the freest person on earth and should therefore be the happiest person on earth. And yet we know they are, in fact, the most enslaved. Why? Because our definition of freedom is wrong. It's not that our definition is completely wrong. It just doesn't go deep enough. See, freedom isn't getting to do what you want. Freedom is wanting what will give you life and then getting to do what you want. Freedom isn't just getting to do what you want. It's wanting what will give you life, and then getting to do what you want. See, true freedom has more to do with your wanter than your behavior. You need to go to the deeper question, not do I get to do what I want, but why do I want to do what I want to do? Is what I want actually something that's going to give me life, or is it something that will, in fact, rob me of life? So here's the thing. God is committed to setting us free. He's given us the gift of freedom in Christ, and he, he is determined to free us to His glory and for our good. And that means He is committed to changing our hearts. <clears throat> so true freedom is first wanting what will give life and then having the ability to pursue it, chase it down, and get it. So what's the difference between standing firm in your freedom and using your freedom? It's the difference between being free and pretending to be free. It's the difference between genuine freedom and simply the appearance of freedom. Take a look back at verse 13. Let's unpack this a little more. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. All right, Jesus died and he rose again to set us free, right? That's the message of the gospel. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve to die. He lived the perfect life and then he went to the cross as my substitute. And on that cross, he bore my guilt, the guilt of everything I've done wrong. The, the, that sense of owing, right? I, I have done plenty of things that have left me in debt, both to God and man. Jesus died to pay that debt. He took my shame. All the things that I want to keep hidden, all the things that, that I am terrified will come out to light, man, they were on public display on the cross. Jesus took my shame, right? He, he took, ultimately, the weight of my sin, died as my substitute, and freed me from that guilt. And gave me his perfect record. He freed me from that shame and gave me his dignity. He freed me from my need to perform for God by performing on my behalf. So when I believe the gospel, I'm freed from from the need to impress God because God's already impressed with Christ. I am freed from the need to perform for God because Jesus already performed for me. I am I am freed from my need to try to pay back some kind of cosmic debt that I can't pay back because God paid it back for me. I, I am free, right? That's positional freedom. I am positionally covered with the righteousness of Christ. I'm I'm taken out of who I was and, and, and made a new man, given a new record, given a new name in Jesus. But God's determined not just to give us positional freedom, but to actually give us practical freedom, personal freedom. He wants to move us into an experience of freedom. And what that means is that he wants to set our heart free from being enslaved to desires that lead to death. Imagine that you were locked in a confined space, maybe a home or a compound, and you were locked there because you had a sickness, some sort of virus. And then imagine somebody came and unlocked that door from outside and you were able to leave the compound. Would you be free? The answer is no, because you're taking your death sentence with you. You you take out of the confines the virus that's killing you, and and worse, you're actually going to spread the virus to others. So you become not only a source of death to yourself, but a source of, of death to others. True freedom doesn't come from the lifting of restrictions. It comes from a changed heart. True freedom doesn't come from fewer rules. It comes from a heart that is transformed, a heart that is set free from the virus of sin. And that's what Paul means when he, when he talks about the flesh, when he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh, when he talks about he's not talking about our physical bodies. right? Paul's not setting up some sort of weird dichotomy that says the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good, and that's not what he's doing. When he talks about the flesh, he's using it metaphorically to talk about that part of you that you inherited from Genesis chapter 3 all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, basically looked at God and said, we don't need you. We'll be like God. We'll be our own gods. We will ultimately uh, center ourselves and the entire universe around us. We will be self-centered, self-glorifying, and self-gratifying. The flesh is that part of us that continues that cry. I don't need God. It's that part of you that, like a virus that, that wants to kill you, it twists your desires, perverts your desires. I love that word pervert because literally it means to bend. It takes something that is good. Your desire was given to you by God and it was designed to take you to God. But, but our flesh comes in and bends that desire from, away from a thing that gives us life toward a thing that doesn't, toward a thing that ultimately gives us death. We crave things that promise life but don't deliver. And the flesh continually whispers in the back of our mind, you don't need God. You can be like God. You don't need God. You've got this. You don't need God's authority. You don't need God's guidance. You don't need what it does. It says, look, you've got all God's gifts. What do you need with God? You don't need the giver of the gifts. you got the gifts. So take the things that He's given you in the creation and look to those things to meet your deepest needs. So we end up looking to the gifts that God gives us to give us things that only God can give us. And we live lives of quiet desperation, lives of disappointment and continual disappointment. And ultimately what ends up happening is the flesh robs us not only of life but all joy in the very gifts that God has given us. It takes God's good gift and, and then basically looks at God and says, I got it from here, right? That, that's what's going on. Is You're basically saying, look, thanks for the gifts, God, but I got it from here. I don't need you. I've got my body. I've got my health. I've got my money. I've got my talents. I've got my well, all the things that God's given us, and then looks at the giver of the gifts and says, but I don't need you. Take a look down at verse 19, because I want you to see how this plays out in our lives. Paul describes the effects of the flesh—that that that broken desire within us, right? Down in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Pause there. What he's saying is they're obvious, you guys. <laughs> they're obvious. All you got to do look is look around. You can see the evidence of the bent desires in each one of us, right? That that sense in which we're we're bent toward things that ultimately take good things and ruin them by by uh, putting good things and making them ultimate things, right? And, and putting God weight on things that aren't God. And then he he gives us a list, right? So first of all, he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. First area that, that Paul looks at, these three words are all associated with God's gift of sex. God is the one that gave us the beautiful gift of sex. It's right there at the beginning of the Bible. You can read it yourself. Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, before sin, Adam and Eve created, and God said, here's this really cool thing. Enjoy it right? He designed it, you guys, right? It's not bad, not weird. He designed it to be pleasurable and wonderful. And then he he said, look, but this is how it works. I'm giving you this gift of sex and and it works in this covenant of marriage, right? You you guys are going to marry each other. You're going to enter into a lifelong covenant with one another because sex is actually part of a greater gift called oneness, and in the covenant of marriage, you're going to discover this greater thing called oneness. See, oneness is actually an attribute of God. God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three who's, one what. The wonderful mystery of the divine trinity is is what that really means is that God's a living party. God is a living community. God is a living dance of of loving and being loved, of sharing and being shared with, of giving and receiving. God is community. And in marriage, what God was saying is, you're going to get to explore this attribute of me. You're going to get to explore this wonderful part of, of who I am. But I want you to do it in this way, right? So sex is a wonder, wonderful gift, but this is how I want you to enjoy it. The problem is that, uh, obviously, flesh comes in and says, you know what, that's not really what sex is for. Sex is really about personal fulfillment. Sex is really about just pleasure. I mean, it's my body, right? It's my body. Who are you to tell me what to do? It's my body. I, I think I know better than you, right? Thanks for the gift. I don't need the giver. Thanks for the gift. I've got it from here. How's this worked out for us? Culturally, if this is true, then we should be a nation of the most sexually healthy, um, well-balanced, well-adjusted people on earth. Is that what we see when we look around? You guys, I meet with people nonstop who are simply the walking wounded as we have suffered and inflict wounds on one another. We are the walking wounded. It's not working out well. And we keep thinking, well, the problem is we just haven't figured it out yet. It's really still all about us. Here's the thing. We're looking to sex to give us what it simply can't give. Sex is a great gift. It makes a horrible God. It can't make you worthwhile. It can't make you loved. It can't make you beautiful. It can't make you feel like a man. It can't satisfy your deepest desires. It cannot make you content. It can lead you into a gift of oneness, it can be a gateway into incredible emotional and physical joy. It can. It's an incredible gift. But what ends up happening is we take the gift, we reject the giver, and we say, I've got it from here. And we end up robbing the gift itself of the very joy it was designed to give. It goes on. We don't just do this in the area of sexuality. We do it really in all areas, right? It goes on. The next two in uh, verse 10, he says, idolatry and sorcery. He's talking about how we bend the area of spirituality, right? We We are designed to be spiritual people. But in our spirituality, when we reject God, it's not about humility. It's not about serving and knowing God. It's about power and being like God, and so we, we seek to find ways to manipulate religious behaviors, um, spirituality, so that I, I am more powerful, so that I can control my destiny, so that I can shape my future. So I, ultimately, I'm trying to make myself like God through my exercise of spirituality, right? He goes on, the next series of words, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, these are all relational sins, these are all ways that we take the, the, the gift of relationship, the gift of competition, and we bend it into comp, uh, a gift of community, and we, and we turn it into competition. We don't value people. We use people. You guys, what ends up happening with the flesh, and it comes in, instead of loving and valuing people, we use people. I am not free to celebrate your beauty, your talent, your intelligence, your strength, because it becomes threatening to mine. I define myself in comparison to you. And when I define myself in comparison to you, you can become threatening to me. So we use our words to tear down instead of build up so that we can feel bigger in comparison to someone else who is smaller. We seek to build a world where we are big and important and beautiful and intelligent and creative. And where ultimately, we are better, better than somebody, better than somebody in order to make ourselves feel good. It's the desire of our heart, you guys, bent. We take this good gift of community and we turn it into this competition. And we're not satisfied with God's glory, so we have to fight for our own. And we bend a good gift. The final two words, drunkenness and orgies, social sins. Psalm 104.15 says that God gave us wine to gladden the heart. Um, There's no doubt there's plenty of abuse of alcohol, but the reality is God gave us the gift of wine. He wasn't surprised when we figured it out. He wasn't like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Oops, you can ferment that stuff, right? No, he knew that that the gift of wine was in fact part of creation and that it was part of God's creation. And, And he intended us to exercise the use of that gift. For his glory and our good. right It was a gift from God to be enjoyed with each other in gratitude to God, but the flesh comes in and says it's the gift that matters, not the giver of the gift. And so we we instead of enjoying wine to God's glory, start using wine for our pleasure and we start looking to alcohol to do for us, to produce feelings in us, to give us freedom, to, to it's ridiculous what we look for it to do because it doesn't deliver it ultimately doesn't free us, it, it enslaves us. We abuse the gift, looking for it to do for our heart, what only God can do. All the things God can and will do in our hearts, we abuse the gift and expect it to do for us. The very end of the list, I love the way Paul wraps this up. At the very end of the list, he says, and things like these. <laughs> this is not a complete list. He's like, I couldn't give you a complete list if I tried, right? Right? These are just examples. And the reality is, if you're looking, they're obvious. It's obvious to see where our flesh bends our desires away from the giver of life and toward death, where where we reject God and seek for uh, our own good. Things like these. You don't need a complete list. Because anytime you're looking to the gift instead of the giver of the gift, that's your flesh. That's your flesh, basically saying to God, thanks for the gift, but I don't need you. You. So, So what does it mean for us to use our freedom instead of stand in it? It means that we use grace as an excuse to stay enslaved to the bent desires of our flesh. We use grace as an excuse to stay enslaved to the bent desires of our flesh. We use the grace of God as an excuse to make us feel okay about our rejection of God. We look at God and we say, thanks for the gift. I don't need you. And by the way, I'm sure glad for grace because I'm forgiven. We say to God, you know what? That was really cool of you. Thanks for that get out of hell free card. That was nice. Now I get to live like hell. And it's a good thing. Grace is unlimited. I'll take everything you give, but I don't want you. Do you understand? That's what your heart is saying. I'll take everything you give, but I don't want you. We're treating God like a prostitute. I want the benefit without the relationship. I want what you give without getting you. When we use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, we want the benefits of relationship with God without the obligations that come with that relationship. And you guys, to this, Paul has an incredibly stern warning. Take a look at verse 21. In 21, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is not exaggerating for effect. He's not simply puffing himself up to say, man, I hope I can scare these right. You need to listen to this. Let this sit on you. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, before that crushes you, Let's just admit that, first of all, every follower of Christ has done this. Every follower of Christ has taken grace for advantage, has used grace as an opportunity for sin. Every follower of Christ. That's why we need grace. Grace is undeserved favor, right? We don't get it when we deserve it. I mean, that's the whole point. We don't deserve it. It's God's unmerited favor, his unearned affection, right? It is ours. Um, even though we don't deserve it. You know, honestly, you guys, last night as I was unpacking this and writing my final draft and trying to just really sit in it, I'm sitting there trying to get all my notes together and collect my thoughts, and it dawns on me that while I'm getting ready to just preach this stuff, there are areas of my life where I'm using grace as an excuse. I'm using grace as a covering for opportunities for the flesh it crushed me. I mean, I, just, I set it down and I got on the floor and I I'm on my face. Who am I to get to teach this? This is me. This is me. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the reality of the complexity of the situation? That, that is, in fact, me, right? That, that, that I'm the one that uses grace as an excuse for sin, that I use as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, here's the thing, you guys. Paul is warning a very specific kind of person in this text. The word do in this verse where it says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, the word do here is a present participle. It speaks of somebody who does it habitually, like this is their way of life. This is their steady, unrepentant, committed way of of relating to God and and relating to the church. There are people in our church, there are people in the Christian world who want the benefits of Christian community. They want the benefits of of, of following Jesus. They like the benefits that come with it, but they don't want Jesus. And people who are like this make it very clear that they don't have faith in Jesus. They're simply using him. You know, this happened in Jesus's lifetime too. During his time, he would go around and he would do these miraculous things, miracles, and and he would do these feedings. And pretty soon he had this big following and they were all called disciples. But in that group of disciples, there were those who, who followed simply because they were being fed. They were like chugging right along, man. We're part of the posse. This is awesome. Why? Because he does cool stuff and he gives good food. So I'm going to hang out here because I like the food and I like the entertainment. But they didn't love Jesus. They liked the benefits of Jesus. It was Him that they could give or take. They didn't love Him. They didn't want relationship with Him. They just wanted what He would give. They wanted Him because He fit their agenda. They wanted their full bellies. And there are plenty of people today that approach God in the same exact way. God is a tool in their toolbox of self-help, self-improvement. God is a means to an end. And the end is my personal fulfillment, my personal joy, my personal advancement. God is a means to an end instead of the glorious end in and of himself. You got God's greatest blessing to us. God's greatest blessing to us in Christ is himself. He gives us the gift of himself. His life, his love, his presence. He is infinitely delightful and infinitely lovable. He will not be your means to another end because he is the glorious end in and of himself. He is the true center of all things. There's a way to use grace without actually believing in the God of grace. And there are those that don't know him, don't love him, don't trust him, but try to use him. And for those people, Paul has an incredibly stern warning. You are on the path to death. And I think it is worthwhile for us to weigh our hearts. While we find these tendencies within us, all of us, if you find within yourself zero affection and love for the God of grace, no desire to truly know and be known by the God of the universe, a simple desire simply to get the blessings of God without the presence of God, you need to realize you have not believed the gospel you have not embraced the good news. Because the message of the gospel is about a God who loves you so much, He died for you. He identified with you so fully, He took your sin and was crushed for you and rose again for you. And if that love doesn't provoke in you a love of response, you just don't believe it. Our love may be imperfect, our love will be. Our faith response will often feel like stumbling in the dark. Half the time, we don't know whether we're moving forward or backward. We're confusing ourselves with our own thoughts, but the reality is at the end of the day, have you believed the gospel, the good news of a God who is on mission to redeem you and restore you for his glory and your good? Has he captivated your heart in some way? because this is the path to freedom. See, faith says, I trust you more than I trust my own heart. Faith says that that when my my flesh is crying out for for gratification, when these bent desires are saying, I need this to be happy, I need this to be fulfilled, I need need this, and, 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 and the Word of God is telling me something else. Faith says, I trust you more than I trust my own heart. I trust the giver of the gifts more than I trust my own heart about how to use the gifts. And so I will tell my heart, no. I will limit my own freedom, my own autonomy so that I can be truly free. See, faith leads to freedom. Faith isn't about self-gratification. Faith is about glorifying God and trusting that ultimately he knows better than I do. When my flesh cries out, you better put yourself first. You better take care of yourself. You better protect yourself. You better put your interests first. And God is saying, I've got you. I've got your interests. I've got your reputation. I've got your future. I've got your security. Faith says, I trust God. A flawed trust. A weak trust, a stumbling in the dark trust, but a growing in real faith. See, the key to true freedom is faith, and the territory that 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 freedom leads you to is love. When the when the when the key of faith opens you up, when it when it releases you in freedom, it releases you to a territory of love. Take a look at verses thirteen through fifteen again. But I, um, for you, were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, or, or another word, another way of putting that is in this one command: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's interesting that that Paul would say, "Be free." <laughs> be free. God's given you the gift of freedom. And in the very next sentence, he says, be a servant. That doesn't sound like freedom. That does not fit our cultural expectation, right? If I am free, I am served. If I am free, I get to choose who I serve, how I want to serve and what ways I want to serve, right? That doesn't sound like freedom. Be free, be a servant. Here's the thing, you guys. In the kingdom of God, in reality, service is the pathway to a greater experience of freedom. Service is the pathway to a greater experience of freedom. See, that's the paradox of true freedom. It can only be experienced in love, and love can only be experienced in relationships. Love is simultaneously the greatest expression and experience of freedom, And the most constrained. Think about the paradox of love, you guys. See, our view of freedom is very, very individualistic. It says it's all about my desires, my experience, my fulfillment. But we weren't created to be isolated in our freedom, we were created to share it with others. Um, This summer, I had my sabbatical, as I've mentioned before, and and part of my sabbatical is I had a period of of isolation. Um, I don't like isolation. I don't, I don't like to be alone. It's something I've actually had to develop a taste for. And, and over the last several years, just trying to keep sanity in the midst of ministry, I've started doing these retreats three times a year where I go away and I'm just by myself. It's me, my journal, my Bible, maybe a book, but it's really just about me getting to a place where I can hear God. And, and in the beginning, I really sucked at this. I just it was not good at being alone. And, and so I'd go someplace and I would hike myself to exhaustion. Like, I would just get out there and do something physical to the point of physical exhaustion to the point where I can come back, I could just crash and sleep, wake up the next morning and be like, yes, I'm done, right? I'm done being alone. That was cool. Uh, But I I actually started developing a taste for it, like actually listening, a prayer of listening, like like just praying, and that took me a long time to develop a a taste for, where, where I wasn't constantly distracting myself with noise or music or my iPhone or just being in the Word and, and being alone and, and praying and listening. And, and I've developed a taste for it. And so I got really ambitious on my sabbatical. I'm like, I'm going to do two weeks of isolation. And it was an intentional part of my, my sabbatical because what I wanted to do was disrupt the rhythms of busyness in my life, right? Cause I'm constantly going, constant noise, constant action, meetings and counseling and talking and planning and writing and speaking and all this stuff going on all the time. And so I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to break that rhythm. I'm going to just break into it so that I can reset my heart in some ways. It was a great idea. It wasn't a great practice. Um, so here's the thing. I go down to Florida. This is where I'm at. I'm down in Fort Myers, Florida. Beautiful place. I got Fort Myers beach. I got Sanibel Island. Beautiful, right? I got a pool. I got a lake with my own alligator. I've got a workout room. I got a mountain bike, a really nice mountain bike trail. It's less than a, 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 an hour away. I took my bike down there. I had two weeks of absolute freedom. No demands on my time. Nobody telling me when to get up or when to go to bed or what to do or when to do it. I had all this stuff around me. I could I could eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Like, like I made myself ribs, and they were mine. And there's nothing better than eating ribs alone because you can eat them like they're really meant to be eaten. You know what I'm saying? Like you're just in it, right? You don't have to worry about who's sitting across the table from you being being grossed out, right? You just, right? I could run around and... <laughs> Like Tom Cruise in Risky Business, right? Running around in my underwear. Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Um, Isn't that not the definition of freedom? I had everything I wanted, a great place to stay, all the food I wanted to eat, all the activities around me I wanted. I had the beach, I had the pool, I I had it all. And you know what? It was horrible. The first week was hard, but good. But it was hard i am like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to go to the pool. Now I'm going to go back to my empty condo. I'm going to watch a movie by myself. Uh, You know what I'm saying? Like, the first week, I got through it. Second week, I started getting kind of weird. And my family can attest to this. Lauren jokes about how, like, we would be Skyping together, and I would just sit there smiling she's like, Steve, you're really weirding me out right now. And I'm like, I can't help it. I see you, you know, like it's just that, you know, and then we turn it off and I was alone. It, it was, it was really, really hard. And so after about two weeks, my family came down, Lauren and and the kids came and joined me. And um, you know what happened? I lost all of my silence. I lost my ability to get up when I wanted and do what I wanted. and 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 you guys know what family vacation is like, right? It's not about you. <laughs> you're constantly be like, okay, when are we going to do this? And when are we going to do this? And how are we going to fit this in? Because you want to do that. How are we going to fit this in so you don't feel slighted? And how do we make sure everybody's having fun? And how do we, you know, so everything gets ordered around the needs of the family. So I went from being all about me to being all about them. I lost all my silence, all my rhythms. Um, I was journaling every day. They showed up. I didn't journal anymore. Um, It was just awesome. It was awesome. Why? Um, because there came a more powerful, more beautiful experience of freedom with my family than I had by myself. I had more fun. I had more joy. I lost autonomy, but I gained a freedom of the heart. See, that's what love does. Love frees us in beautiful ways that no amount of money No amount of of lack of rules or self-autonomy or self-indulgence or power or achievement can ever do. Love puts greater constraints on us than any of those things. But love frees us to experience joy and beauty and purpose in ways that none of those things can do. And it does it at a cost, right? To love someone means to put them first, to live for the good of others. Instead of simply living for your own good, it, it means that that you actually get a freedom that comes from giving up freedom. Every lover knows this. If you've ever had a lover, you know that, that what that requires of you is the sacrifice of autonomy, to fall in love, to be loved To give and to receive, to share, requires you to put someone ahead of yourself. It requires a dangerous level of freedom loss. Because you say to that person, you're more important to me than I am to me. I yield my freedom. I sacrifice my freedom to gain freedom. A new, different, and more powerful kind of freedom of the heart. I give up autonomy to gain joy. I step out in faith, and my faith is that you're going to to be worth it, that this relationship is going to be worth the sacrifice of my autonomy and my isolation. It's going to be worth the the invitation into intimacy, which will require me to be vulnerable and ultimately lead to, no doubt, hurt, right? But I'm willing to do, I'm willing to sacrifice those forms of freedom to gain a greater kind of freedom. Every parent knows this. There's no greater form of freedom loss than having a kid. (laughs) That's just reality, right? (laughs) Amen. There is nothing more demanding, often nothing more thankless than a child. They demand everything of you. But there are few things in life that can increase your capacity for joy like a child. My kids, man, they have sucked the life out of me. And I love them. I wouldn't trade it. I have a greater capacity for experiencing love and joy because of the sacrifice. What Paul is saying is that the boundaries of your freedom are not set by how much autonomy you have, but by how much you love. You guys, this is why we need community. This is why we need the church. This is why you need to serve. You know what happens when you serve? First of all, it's you stepping out in faith. When you serve, what you're saying is someone else's needs are more important than mine right now. Right? Serving isn't fun. It's meeting someone else's needs. It's doing something often in a hidden way. It costs you something for someone else's benefit. That's what service is. And when you serve, what you're doing is saying, your needs are more important than my sacrifice. And so it requires you to step out in faith. And why faith? Because what you're saying is, I'm going to do this for God's glory, and he's going to meet the needs of my heart in ways that autonomy can't. When I step out and serve, what I'm saying is I'm doing this first for God and then for others, for his glory and ultimately for my good, but I'm doing it trusting that he's going to meet me in the service. The second thing that's going to happen is as you serve, God's going to use that to kill your flesh. There are few things that are more painful than serving in hidden ways. Serving in ways that nobody says thank you. Doing something for someone they don't even notice, but they needed. Everything in you is going to cry out, look at me, say thanks to me, acknowledge me, give me glory. And for you in faith to simply say, for God to be glorified and their need to be met is enough for me. It's for you to look at that bent desire for glory in your heart and say, that desire is taking me to death. I will instead, by faith, pursue life. God's glory, they're good. And what will end up happening is God will use that service to change your heart. He will set you free a little bit more. He will increase your capacity for love and joy a little bit more. There are a few things that put the flesh to death like service. A few things that will free your heart to love and be loved like service. Serving those that you love and serving those you don't like. Serving those that you have affection for and serving those you don't even know. Next week, we're going to get into kind of the messier side of this because the reality is when you get into real community, this can get tricky. How do you serve somebody who abuses your service? How do you love somebody who abuses or manipulates your love? What does this look like in the messiness of real life? See, Paul only devotes three verses in the book of Galatians to this topic, but in the book of Romans... Which is kind of an expanded Galatians. He he devotes an entire chapter, chapter fourteen, to this topic. So next week, that's where we're going. We're going to get into Romans fourteen. And we're going to talk about how this plays out in really the messiness of, of real life, and 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 what it looks like for us to both stand in freedom, to serve in love, but also uh, at times to uh, to figure out how to do the hard thing of of even not serving at times. But we'll get into that next week. So moving into response for this morning, I'm going to put these questions on the overhead, and, and, and ask you. We're going to go into time of response. I'm going to ask you to pray and let God speak to your heart. First question is this. Are there areas where you are using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? And I'm going to help you out a little bit. The answer is yes. The real question is, is where? Where are you using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? Where are you believing a lie and letting your flesh lead you to death instead of believing the truth and letting God, the giver of good gifts, give you the guidelines about how to use those gifts? Second question that flows from that, what would it look like for you to move into community, to move into real freedom? Sometimes the most powerful thing we can do to address this brokenness of our heart is to invite others in, to let other people see the brokenness, to let them know, hey man, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm having a hard time believing God. This is where I am actively pursuing sin in my life. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't even know if I want to deal with it sometimes. But invite people in to, to speak truth into that, to, to, to help bear that burden with you, to pray with you and to pray over you and to help you grow in it. What does it look like for you to move into community, that kind of community with people? So you're not simply hiding away these private places where they can eat away at you and destroy you. Thirdly, where is God calling you to serve in gratitude for God's love and as an expression of love? The question isn't, is God calling you to? We just read it. It's commanded. (laughs) It's one of those guidelines from the giver of the gifts, right? He's like, this is how you do it. So the question isn't, should you do it or can you do it or will you do it? The question is, where? Where is God calling you to serve this week in hidden ways? Who is God calling you to bless for God's glory and not your own? Who is God calling you to do good things for in ways that you don't receive the glory for? How is God calling you to serve the church, the body of believers in ways that equips the body of believers to glorify God? Where is God calling you to serve? You will be blessed. This is an act of faith moving into the territory of love and saying, God will release my heart as I serve. So where is that for you? All right, let me pray for us. We're going into a time of response, and after we respond, we will share communion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our Father, our Abba, and that we are your children. We thank you, Lord, that we get to come to a throne of grace, that we don't deserve your affection. We have not earned your favor. The only thing you ask of us is that we receive it, genuinely receive it by faith in love. So, Father, I pray that you would break our pride, break our hearts with your love, that from that beautiful place of brokenness, we'll love you more. We will respond to who you are and be drawn to the true center of all things. Lord, we need you to do this in us. We can't do it ourselves. And I thank you that you don't reject us because we're resistant to grace. You don't reject us because we're slow to learn. You don't reject us. You love us. I pray for my friends that are struggling with this stuff and maybe haven't believed. And ask, Lord, that this morning you would place the call of the gospel so clearly in their minds that you would put the call of love so heavy on their hearts that they would be moved, compelled to respond, to love you because, they, because you first loved them. I pray for those, Lord, that are here, that are abusing your grace, your children, whom you are calling to repent, that you will give them a clarity of faith and a renewed love that would allow them to move toward community, move toward growth, move toward freedom. I pray for those that aren't your children that think they are, that maybe they don't even... Lord, I just pray that you give them a wake-up call. There will be a gong that goes off inside their head that says, man, I'm doing this wrong. Lord, we know in the end we can only respond. And so I pray, Lord, that you would make your call clear to our hearts, that you would call us to respond in love. We thank you that as glorious as you are, as perfect as you are, you're also humble and loving. And invite us to grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.